I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Susanna Wise, whose sci-fi debut, This Fragile Earth, was published in 2021. I wanted to ask Susanna on the podcast, just as her paperback comes out and before her second book is published, to discuss being a debut one year on. Susanna is an actor and writer who grew up in London and the Midlands. She studied at the Faber Academy, which is where we met, and both her novels have been long-listed for the Mislexia Prize. In this episode... We talk about how her world building developed through different drafts, the ups and downs on the way to publication, and the highlights of her debut year. But first, here's Susanna with an excerpt from This Fragile Earth. Eight lanes of motorway stretched out in both directions, an endless line of vehicles. Some had barely an inch between bumper and tail. No movement inside. It gave her goosebumps. She pulled Jed from his seat and lifted the bike over the metal barriers. They walked through the gaps in traffic on the southbound carriageway. A large green coach with white paper bibs draped over the headrests in the fast lane. The door was closed, but the luggage section underneath was open. The luggage all gone save for a fire extinguisher and a gurney. The sign up front read, Steadway Academy. They climbed the central reservation and stood on the northbound carriageway, staring up the straight lanes that led away. Lorries towered in the slow lane like standing stones. To her right, a hatchback. Inside, a baby seat covered in crumbs, an empty water bottle, a pair of UV glasses with the arms missing, a book on cooking, delicious for little ones. The jacket cover, a picture of a steaming sweet potato with cheese. She tried the doors. Locked. Not a soul around. She stamped on the fibreglass. Mud from her boots flew off in pellets. This is the road to Gamma's? Jed asked. This is it, she said. Grey clouds lowered, closer now. Miles ahead, the sky a bluish white. She chose the hard shoulder. Fewer cars, pedalling slowly. A red estate car doors open. A trail of empty crisp packets, coffee cups and foil paper led away to the verge. Further ahead, belongings, people's rubbish littering the road like entrails. She took off again, that feeling as the landscape slid back. 
The further we go, the more we leave the ugliness behind. Who used to say that? Was it Dad? If you see anyone, she said, eyes fixed on the road ahead, tell me immediately, but don't shout. Whisper like I'm doing now. Hi, Susanna. Welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you here with me today. Thank you, Chloe. So pleased to be here. Can you start us off by telling us what this fragile earth is about? Yeah, so this fragile earth is a speculative fiction. It's set in the near future um, in London in the Midlands, and it's essentially a mother-son survival story. They start in London, and the second half of the book is set in the Midlands. I won't give too much away. Yeah, we don't want to give any spoilers out too soon. Can you remember where that kind of first spark of inspiration came from and kind of how that idea developed? Yeah, so... Essentially what happened was um, back in 2015, which is when I actually started writing the novel and I, I finished a draft within about nine months. So it was it was done by the early mid part of um, 2016. But it, but at the beginning ish of 2015, um, my family discovered that my father, who was uh, 90 at the time, so he's quite old, but he was very you know, had all his faculties and he, he, although he was a little bit frail physically, he was mentally completely acute. He was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. So he'd had prostate cancer for a long time and it had been very, very slow moving. And the doctors had said, you know, you're going to die of completely something else. And then suddenly it accelerated and it was like stage five and the oncologist gave him some uh, medication which wasn't working and so then he had this phone call where i sat in the room and and they said um i'm really sorry herbie this you know unfortunately we've kind of reached the end of our road it's about palliative care now and my dad who was a, is a very was a very philosophical person and had a great kind of um yeah, philosophy about life and death and stuff, but he wasn't ready to, he didn't want to die. I mean, I don't think anyone really wants to die, but I know that some people are much more accepting. Anyway, he was, his initial reaction was that he was pissed off. And I remember him putting the phone down and just being incredibly, um, and going, right, well, that's it. I mean, that's it. I'm completely buggered, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and so I went home and obviously I was very upset, even though I accepted he was, old, you know, it wasn't sort of that uh, against nature that he was um, ill at this, you know, stage of his life. But, um, but anyway, I, I went to bed that night, and uh, I lay in bed, and I thought, as a sort of reflex reaction to this news, almost like a way of distracting myself, which is something that I've done, I realise as an adult since I was little, which is sort of invent fantastical, catastrophic situations in order to kind of cope with real life um, issues. I, I, I lay in bed and I thought to myself, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to me and my then my son, who was then five. And I came up with this thought and I thought, what if, God, what if gas and electricity got cut off in London? And then what if the water got cut off? And then what if, and then, and then, and then, and then we had to go on the run and go to this tiny little hamlet in the Midlands where my parents used to have this cottage when I was growing up. And what if when we got there, things were even worse than we could have possibly imagined. And there was something else that was um, very unexpected going on. And within about an hour, I had come up with the entire plot really for this fragile earth. 
and I was doing a play at the time at the Young Vic and I was very busy so I was doing like eight shows a week because my other job as an actor uh, and it's very tiring and you know doing theatre and but these words were like itching to get out of my head I'd never written any long form prose before and I thought I'm just going to start so I started writing and I wrote about 10,000 words and then my father became very sick um, and we nursed him at home till he died and I, so I had this sort of hiatus for about four or five months and then after he died I just sat down and started writing again and I just didn't stop basically <laughs> just didn't stop writing um, and I and I haven't stopped since mm. and that was seven years ago <laughs> at what point did you kind of realize you had something good on the page like when did you feel confident enough to say I want to do something with this work well in truth I I don't know whether how many writers would say this but you know, I, I still look at it and don't know if it's good. <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 what if, if what you mean is when did I realize? So what happened was I started writing and I, and because I'd never written long form before, I thought, oh, and I'm very impatient. And as you can hear, I talk quite fast and everything I do is quite quick and a little bit slapdash. And I thought, oh, well, I'll write 10,000 words and then I'll, I'll stop and I'll, I'll give up because, uh, you know, I'll, there won't be enough immediate, um, what's the word sort of, equivalent of applause um gratification uh, <laughs> gratification thank you just so good amazing vocabulary um uh, but um i found that actually it was the opposite and i loved the sort of slow slow process of writing i found that living in my head in my imagination was incredibly um, satisfying and absorbing I felt creatively really fulfilled and I loved I'm quite pedantic so I loved sort of structure and it was like a jigsaw puzzle to me so it was a bit like doing cryptic crossword or something and I just loved it so that was a real surprise and when I realized how much I enjoyed that that's when I thought oh and I and I went back to it after 10,000 words and I just kept going I, I actually joined a writer's group, which I'll talk about a bit later. Um, mm. um, but uh, that really helped because it was a big motivator for me to keep going because I wanted to impress them, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, groups like that are good. And obviously we met doing the Faber Academy and it does motivate you to impress people because you're showing them their work, your work on a regular basis. and. And when you get the feedback, you think, right, next time I'm going to write something so good, but no one's going to have anything critical to say. <laughs> exactly, exactly how it was. Yeah. So what appealed to you about, I know you're, you're a very literary writer, but what appealed to you about kind of writing this post-apocalyptic story? And uh, because there's obviously, there is, I guess, a more sci-fi leaning aspect of that genre, but then there's, there's things like Station Eleven, and there's, there's been other, I don't know whether you've read Severance by Ling Ma, um, that are kind of post-apocalyptic near future stories. So what was it that appealed to you about kind of writing that genre? I've always loved that near future, like the world we recognise, but just slightly turned mm. on its head a little bit or on the edge, turned on its edge maybe, um, uh, where the sharp... Um, points come out and uh so I loved I had read station 11 I haven't read the Ingmar one you'd really enjoy um, it 
Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to write that down. Um, but I have read Station Eleven. I loved it. And I used to read John Wyndham when I was younger, um, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. I used to, you know, um, John Christopher, um, all these sort of 70s science fiction writers. One of my favorite books when I was young was called Children of the Stones. And it was a, it was also a kind of speculative novel. So I've always been very, very attracted to the, the real with the hyper real attached to it. And so I wouldn't say I'm a science fiction writer per se, as I'm not a genre writer, but I just wanted to tell this story about ordinary people in ordinary situation having extraordinary things happen to them and how they would deal with that. So how did you go about kind of your world building? Because I imagine that you did have to do quite a bit of research and reading in terms of looking at technology and I know one thing that really impressed me when I was reading was even the details such as the food they eat changes to kind of where our country would import food from and what we'd be eating so can you talk a little bit about how you researched all those sorts of things thank you um yeah so I'd 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 done a fair bit of research I mean I I didn't know it was research at the time because I, I wasn't writing the book yet and I didn't have any idea I'd be writing the book but I've always been very interested in future tech and a specific interest in artificial intelligence and robots. Um, I was terrified of Daleks as a child. I mean, they, <laughs> they sort of, it's like sharks. I like love them and hate them at the same time, sort of fascinated. And so I'd always loved this idea of robots and robotics and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'd read, there's an internet site called Wait But Why? And it has lots and lots of different articles on it. One of them is like, you know, for example, um, why do we procrastinate or, you know, I mean, sort of philosophical stuff. And Mm. one of them was something like, why are humans not extinct or something like that? Like, what will we become extinct? And it was a long, 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 long piece about the great filter, which is, you know, all um, living things, including the dinosaurs have had uh, a great filter at some, so, Um, like we're in the Anthropocene age at the moment, you know, and will we have our own great filter for the dinosaurs? It was probably something like an asteroid. What will be ours? And have we already had it? And are we going to be the only species, known species on Earth that actually passes through the great filter and survives? Or will we die off an artificial intelligence takeover? So I was fascinated by that. So I've done quite a lot of reading about that. I'd also read things like Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence, which is about the future of AI. And um, and then while I was writing the book, I went on a whole day masterclass with a new scientist, which was like eight hours in a dark lecture theater, <laughs> listening to one amazing expert after another, talking about all aspects of artificial intelligence. And, you know, even to their sort of rights as, I'm not going to say human rights because they're not mm. humans, but they're legal robot rights. rights. <laughs> they're robotic rights, exactly. Um, and it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And whether they had a conscience and could that, you know, various people coming from different angles. It was really, really interesting. I took lots of notes um, and felt very pleased with myself. Um, and then I watch a lot of science fiction. I don't actually read a lot of science fiction, but I watch a great deal of science fiction. I find the world building visually absolutely fascinating in film um, and television. Um, Battlestar Galactica was a big influence, the more modern uh, adaptation of that television. Um, I think that's a fantastic series. <laughs> Regarding things like the food and the layering of the world building, it, building, it really was like, you know, the layers of an onion. It was, I did a draft and then I'd add in a bit more and then I'd add in a bit more. 
and the food came quite late because um i was starting to think about all aspects of of the world and originally um the food was all kind of like as we would recognize it i suppose with a little bit of a futuristic tweak and then i thought well but the whole of the way we you know movement of peoples and mm-hmm. um nationalities would have changed and um if economics had changed i mean when i started writing they hadn't even we hadn't even left the european you no, it wasn't even brexit mm-hmm. so i put in that they were all using euros you know because when i first wrote the book i only set it 12 years in the future so that would given that it was 2015 we'd only be about five years away from it <laughs> now um and um and so everyone was paying in euros. And then of course we left the European Union. I thought, well, we won't be doing that. And then we won't, and then I thought, and then I moved it further along in the future, pushed it further, another few, you know, I kept moving it further, like another 20 years, another 10 mm-hmm. years. Um, and uh, and then I thought, well, we won't be we won't be paying with money, we'll be paying yeah. with cryptocurrency or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know. So even the irony is, of course, you could read this fragile earth in seven years and probably think, oh, some of that future stuff looks a bit old-fashioned now like mm. you know what I mean like it's well it's funny. like it's like any sci-fi isn't it that you look back on it, and it I think of things like back to the future and you look at the the second film which is set I want to say it's 2015 I might be wrong and you think well that was that was wrong we don't have any flying hoverboards or flying cars but you know you have to you have to make some sort of estimate don't you about what the future is going to look like and of course we can guess at some elements but some are completely completely off that's so true and it's so funny you mentioned back to the future because i have um a fly i mean flying hoverboard mention in my novel and it was like a nod to back to the future because (laughs) because i thought are these is this tech even ever going to come in Mm. because normally most tech especially tech that's successful has to have a need you know it has to fulfill a function that is from from a requirement and Mm. i don't think hoverboards are actually (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, they might not catch on is yeah. what you're trying no. to say no. <laughs> so how did you manage to kind of keep that balance between the world building and also I guess just integrating it in a in a seamless way where you're not you're not over explaining things because I think there's there's no point where you take the reader out of the story you just kind of assume they know what this stuff is and treat them as if treat the reader as if they're fully on board with the world building that you've done so how did you find writing that did you have a tendency of thinking oh I need to explain that or did you just try and take those bits out thank you um that's really nice thing to say um I had put all those things in (laughs) explaining (laughs) explaining explaining and then took them out because in a way part of it was explaining to myself as I was writing it um and then as the book I grew in confidence, I suppose, over the, you know, years that I was writing and rewriting it, as in, I'd already done a draft, but as you and I both well know, that it's just the beginning. Um, (laughs) And so as I was redrafting, I realized that I could pull out less, I could pull out more and more and more and pair back and pair back and pair back and make assumptions and the reader could hopefully catch up i mean it was quite handy having a six-year-old boy in it because he could explain some of the um through a kind of more childlike lens um i thought it worked quite well some of the reviewers have <laughs> not enjoyed that aspect but um but i i i thought that was good because children do um they live so in the present and they do talk about things in the present in a way that adults 
don't. And so um, the, the boy was very based on my son at the time. And, um, and he, you know, a lot of the observations were, were my son's observations, mm. obviously not the futuristic ones, but um, the others. Uh, and, um, and so I used him a lot as a mouthpiece to, to uh, explain the world. But yes, I, I mean, it was a case of putting things in and then taking them out, like the explanations. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to speak to you about your mother-son relationship, Sydney and Jed. And you mentioned that it's kind of based on the relationship you had with your son or when he was younger. Did that make it easier to kind of develop their relationship on the page? Or were there times where you were like, well, I would never react like this, so I can't write this? That's so interesting. Um, so it 100% did make it easier because um, I was writing essentially about, I mean, as you know, we use avatars when we write. So um, characters are based on uh, people and 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 not. Um, and I think with a lot of debut writers, I might be speaking out of turn here, but in my experience, a lot of debut writers write very close to themselves in terms of characters. Um, perhaps not so much with your novel, but um, <laughs> but but um, I'll let other people be the judge of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I don't know. But maybe you might. I, I mean, I'd be interested to know actually. Where the, maybe that's for another conversation. But um, certainly with my book, I used actually my life situation and like where I lived and you know my life experiences. I relied very heavily on those. Um, and with my relationship with my son. But what's so interesting about your question is. Uh, did I find it difficult? I tell you what I did find difficult is when I had to separate from my relationship with my mm. son and my son's relationship to me and our personalities and put in somebody else's. I felt so resistant because um, I made her probably less um, like, I mean, obviously both the characters are in a very dark and dangerous situation. So it's not going to bring out the jokes, is it? But it, but it, I felt like, the character of Signy was a sort of like a kind of almost like a more solid version of myself as in I don't mean reliable I mean like a kind of more dense like mm -hmm. less porous and less fluid um and less light in a way and and Jed was a um a more I don't know what the word I'd use than my child but a less accepting version than my child is with at five he's he was very acquiescent he's very easygoing my son um he loves learning and his eyes are always open to things but he's actually very kind of obedient um i know that's not the right word but you know what i mean like he's he's easy uh and i, I needed for some of the aspects of the story for the boy not to be obedient and to and uh, I needed the mother to be more short and more tense with her son. And it kind of killed me to write it. Cause I thought <laughs> that's not how I speak to my son in that situation. But, um, but I had to do it. It was really, mm. it caused me a lot of pain to do it. Yeah. I can imagine that there were times where you, you, you almost like resented your characters for saying particular things or being particularly, well, it's a tense situation, but, some of the some of the situations where your characters are in they are quite harsh with each other and it must have been you feel you feel quite protective over that relationship so it's it must be quite difficult to to put things in or maybe even when you were working with your editor if they suggested things and you were thinking no because I'd never say that or do that do you know it's yeah 
actually it was more and maybe i'm gonna have to now my writing group when i was writing early on and i was reading they were saying why is the boy so you know accepting of everything why is he just doing everything his mother asked and i thought that's what my son does (laughs) and they were like they were like he should be more, you know, blah, 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 and, and say no more and be more difficult. And she should get more grumpy. Anyway, so I did change it. But retrospectively, I do wonder whether that was actually a mistake on my part and whether I should have kept it closer to, to mine and my son's genuine relationship, which was a very, te- is a very tender relationship. I mean, my son's mm. 12 now, but um, we've always got along very well. He's uh, just a very easy, I don't think I'm not an easy person, but he is. Um, and so, uh, I, I, I do still wonder about that, whether I would have, if I was given that my time again, would I go back and change that a little bit? You've said already that the idea came to you pretty much fully formed and you just started writing and writing. I want to know whether this is a common occurrence for you, whether you are not really a planner, whether you're just going to go with the flow and kind of worry about the structure afterwards, really. So I definitely say I'm more on the pantsy side than the planny side. Because the first book came to me with its plot more or less, more or less kind of out there. And the structure is very like this day, then this day, then this day. It runs concurrently and the days run in order. So it's got like the unities of time and that was, although I didn't plot it, um, uh, I sort of knew where I was going in my head. Mm. I hadn't written down like notes, whatever. Um, My second novel, which is coming out this July, I completely pants. I basically, met a woman on Hampstead Heath who started talking to me about someone who she'd met who was seeing a shrink who was losing his memory. And I just thought what an amazing, weird situation that would be if you were in analysis and your and your shrink kept forgetting stuff. And that was the seed of the idea, but I had absolutely no idea where I was going with that book. And I think in some ways it shows, you know, it's kind of like bonkers, that novel. My third book, which I'm just completing now, that that I had to plan a little bit. But again, when I say plan, I mean, we're talking about half a day where I write down what I think is going to happen. Mm. I don't know whether you find this, Chloe, but for me, part of the pleasure of writing is you have a vague idea, but then you start, and of course, things go off in different directions. And then you're lying in the bath, or you go for a walk, and you're like, "What about if this happened?" Mm. I do, I do agree to an extent, but I'm definitely way more of a planner than you are. It kind of stresses me out not having a plan. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm so in awe of people. Do you do yellow post-it notes and things like that? Um, I'm not a post-it notes. I've just recently written an eight thousand word plan for my the novel I'm currently working on. <laughs> Wow, I'm really impressed. <laughs> it's like a non-fiction proposal. It is. I'm I so know. Yeah. I don't know um, whether that that's kind of kidding myself. That's going to be make it easier to write, but I think it almost tricks myself into not worrying too much about the blank page because I think it's okay. I've got my plan, but then it, whether that works or not, I don't know. It will definitely work. I think I think it will definitely work. If you've done something so detailed and thought about it so much, it will definitely work. Mm. Mine plan my plans in inverted commas are all <laughs> so rough that um that I easily deviate. Um, but it seems to be the way that I like to write. It's quite kind of loose and freeform. And um it does mean that I have to do a lot of editing at the back end mm. um because I don't write clean as, as one very good 
writer who I know who who's written I think two or three really good books actually but she she was is a journalist and she and I remember asking her when I first started writing this fragile earth you know slightly awestruck I was like how you know how do you do you have to do loads of edits and she sort of looked at me and said rather imperiously no I write clean and I thought oh okay well I really don't <laughs> I really don't I'm incredibly um I write too much you know I over explain la 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 so How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I want to ask now about how you got your agent and how your book deal came about. So started writing in 2015, joined writers group, was doing all that. And then about 10 months into, I'd, I'd written a draft. Maybe I hadn't even written a draft, but I was getting there. I sort of naively thought, oh, I'll just send it. I'll send my book out to a couple of agents, see if they like it. I mean, my book, I hadn't even finished it. And I had uh, someone say, send me, I think it was like the first 30,000 words or something like that. So I did. And then she was sort of said, mm, not really for me. Thanks so much. And then I wrote a draft and I got, and then I did a bit more. And then I wrote, I sent it to a lovely agent who said, I really like this and started sort of 
working on it with me and a kind of loose saying this, you know, I think you need to do this. I think you need to do this. So I did that. Um, meantime, I got long listed for the Miss Lexia uh, first novel award. And then I sent it back to her and she said, look, I'm really, she was quite a junior agent where she was at the time. Mm. She said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm normally YA. And because this is a non YA book, technically my boss uh, doesn't want me to take it on and, and doesn't think that it, I can sell it. So I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to pass. And then I had another agent, another big agency, uh, sort of work on the novel with me for about nine months, but still wasn't offering me to take me on. So I was finding it really confusing because she was incredibly invested and she would like text me while she was reading it and things and saying, oh my God, I've just got to such and such a bit. Mm. So I thought, well, she'll definitely sign me. And it still hadn't happened. She's really nice and very helpful. Meantime, I was getting a bit frustrated with the fact that people seem to be interested. And then, and I said to my writers group, I'm thinking of um, doing a writing course like doing the Faber Academy partly because I want to legitimize my writing a bit more um I want to meet other writers I want to learn more about the writing craft um and be in the world of writers and partly because Faber have this well lots of writing uh, things have this incredible tool towards the end of your course or if you do an MA or whatever where you get help being introduced into industry people and they were my writers a couple of them were like why do you want to do that when you you know it's really expensive and you, you um you know you've got great writers here which i do they're amazing mm. writers fiction writers incredible uh but anyway i didn't listen to them <laughs> so um i paid for the Faber, Faber academy and the day i accepted the place i turned down a play in the west end and i thought wow this is telling you know like that was my decision and i felt really mm. good about it It was my birthday as well so i was I, I went out to dinner and i felt really calm and really happy and i knew something this was the right decision for me and you know started the course as you know and um because we were together on it and i absolutely loved it and um had a great time it was everything that i wanted it to be and more and then um at the end you get to sort of read to agents you did at the time get to read to a sort of like small audience of agents is kind of terrifying and nobody came up to me afterwards and said oh i liked your piece or whatever and i thought oh god i'm never going to know and other people were sort of getting interest some of them and then they also send your work out in an anthology and from that anthology about five months after we'd finished i had a um email from a my current agent laura mcdougall at united saying i've just read your piece and thing are you represented yet? You probably are. And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> and, and I, and um, so I went to meet her and she had, so this was an extract of my second novel, the one that's coming out in July, because that's what I'd written on the Faber course. Uh, and she said, um, I had this lovely meeting and she said, look, I, I really like it. But I think you're, I think send me the whole thing. So I did. And she said, right, well, I think it needs work. So I'm not going to offer to represent you right now. I think you need to re work it and then send it to me again and I thought oh here we go again this is exactly like the other agents mm -hmm. and I still had this other agent who'd been working with still like on the back burner she still hadn't said yes or no she was still kind of so in this meeting I said to Laura my agent well I've got another book actually and she went what and I said well yeah I've already written one I it, um I just you know it's a it's a speculative novel she went oh I, I hate science fiction and I said oh I said oh well she went, oh look it's Christmas just send it to me anyway and I'll just oh, I'll have a look at it and uh, and I went out and I thought, oh God, I've got to do all this right. I've got this reworking, rewriting the second novel over Christmas. And that evening, so like five hours later, I got an email from her saying, I've just read your other novel in one sitting, and I want to represent you. So that was 
really lovely and made my Christmas one of the nicest <laughs> Christmas I've ever had. And uh, yeah, it's just that's how that's how I got my agent. How I got my publishing deal was that we, Laura and I, kind of knocked this fragile earth into a bit more shape um, as it is now appears in the novel, and um, sent it out on a submission and. As we all know, as authors, you know, you get, I, I love this so much, but I don't think it's, I love this, but I don't, you know, mm. I was like, oh my God, how many people? And then I said, look, can you just send it to this uh, editor that I did a masterclass day at Glanks? I did a, a, a workshop sort of day with, with two of our other Faber writers, one who's just got herself an agent, rather brilliantly. She has, done yeah. It. Yes. Um, and, we went along to we'd gone along to this day this is about a year before and uh, i really loved it i'd love galanks i'd love meeting the editors i thought god what a lovely environment this is what nice people these people are and i said to my agent can you just send it to marcus gibbs who's this head chief editor there and he wrote back and said i'm really interested but the ending needs rewriting before i'll say yes so i rewrote the ending across the summer and sent it back to him and he said yes and that was really lovely and then that following January, so 2020, it was my birthday again. This keeps happening on my birthday, doesn't it? January, <laughs> January. I was I was filming a commercial for Aldi, <laughs> and um, and I got a phone call from my agent saying, "So it's a two book deal," and then gave me the amount. Said that I wasn't expecting that because she'd said to me, "Look, don't expect anything. It's going to be naught pounds." And you know, and she went, "So are you happy with that?" I went, "Yeah," <laughs> and that's and that's how it worked. That's how it went out. Mm. So yeah. I was very lucky, but I had a lot of I had a lot of no's as well on, on submission. It wasn't like I had a 12 way auction or anything. I know yeah. some of your other panelists here have, have had auctions or, you know, things like that. It wasn't it wasn't the case at all. I think what's interesting and, and maybe frustrating as well is that there are so many ways it can go. And there's so many points where you just think, you know, have I missed my shot? It's not going to go the way I wanted it to. Like you said, unfortunately in writing rejections never end so even if you get an agent it doesn't guarantee you're going to get a book deal and even getting the book deal it happens but then there there might be setbacks so it's interesting to hear basically times where you could have packed it all in and given up but you you carried on and and thankfully it had a happy ending yes exactly Obviously, your book came out uh, last year in hardback, ebook, audiobook, and your paperback is coming out in April of 2022. So you had a whole year of being a debut. So what have you learned about being a debut kind of in yourself or about the process? Well, oh, well, how long is a piece of string? I mean, <laughs> so in the time leading up to, I mean, I'm because of having been an actor, A, I'm really used to rejection. And B, I'm used to that sort of weird adrenaline thing where, you know, you've got a show opening or a TV shows coming on or people tell you well done and then or you wait for a review and it's bad or, you know, that weird sort of jagged graph that you have mm. of your kind of nervous system as it gets thrown around like it's on a sea. And I thought, well, I'll be fine. And I could see because I was in a debuts group on Twitter who were wonderful and very supportive. Um, I could see obviously people whose debuts came out before me and they were like, oh, I'm a nervous wreck. I can't sleep. And I thought, what are they talking about? It's going to be fine. It's like, just a, be fine. you know, it's a book. At least it, you're not having to stand on stage in front of 3000 people. Ha ha. Well, I had to eat my words <laughs> because um, 
I realized that I was completely, and it was what was so weird is it wasn't like acting where you get nerves, like where your heart beats really fast and you sort of sweat and you want to go to the toilet. And it was much more like it, I took it in my body. It was like my body um, was expressing the stress and the nerves. So I'd sort of like get weird aches and pains, or I don't know, I couldn't sleep, or I went to, uh, I was seeing a physio for something at the time and I turned up. Um, close to when the book was coming out she went oh my god you've lost loads of weight and I thought really <laughs> I wasn't even aware but obviously I was just burning energy what did I learn that I get much more stressed than I thought um it is quite stressful having your debut out and uh much less stressful after your debuts come out because I have another book coming out this year the difference is quite striking in terms of how I'm feeling inside inside myself as they say in therapy <laughs> um I feel yeah more at peace, I would say, or more accepting. I think the thing is with the debut, we get into, as authors, we get into this idea that if it's not like the num Sunday Times number one bestseller, I mean, it'd be lovely, um, but if it's not that somehow it's either a failure or everyone's looking at you sort of sniggering behind your back thinking, well, that didn't do very well, or if it doesn't win the book or it means it's not a good book or, you know, but actually, writing is a marathon even the process of writing is a marathon not a sprint but actually mm. also the career your career one's career as an author is hopefully a long one and everything's so slow because the book takes a long time to write and then thereafter as you and i both know it's a long time before the book comes out that it's all it's all going to be okay <laughs> it'll be all right on the night you know it's like um i i think as well as a debut, you know, things like launch parties become quite kind of point of focus and reviews and stuff. And, um, and it's, it's a very exciting, it's a very exciting time. And it's a very rewarding time, but it's also really terrifying. And it's never quite how you want it. Even people I know who have had like huge publicity campaigns behind them have done really, really well in terms of sold thousands of books or whatever, they still feel like there's more they could have achieved or it could have been a bit better if only yada 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 yeah we talk a lot about me about kind of shifting goalposts of success and you know we would have been happy with one thing uh six months ago and then you get that thing and then you want the next thing so what for you have been like the highlights of your last year as being a bit debut well certainly appearing on the front of <laughs> The Independent, the I newspaper, next to Harry Kane when he in his semi final when England scored. <laughs> that was a bit of a, a coup. Um, basically, I, inside was an article about inherited trauma that I was writing about. So, um, but that was quite that was very unexpected. I did not expect that, and I had absolutely no idea. And someone had texted me saying, "I watched Newsnight last night, and it's the headline, you know, newspaper covers, and you're on there." Um, <laughs> that's me being very superficial what has what has been there I, I tell you what's the best the best thing is people as in I shouldn't delineate between anyone but order as I, when I say ordinary readers I mean readers mm. who aren't like reviewers in uh, the Guardian or whatever so readers and also that aren't my mum readers <laughs> who 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 write to you or contact you or tell you unprompted that they loved your book they love reading your book and they loved your book that is my highlight and that's a that's an unexpected highlight because the great thing about writing a novel is and what i love about um 
this world of books is that there is truly to me no difference between you know joe from berkhamstead who i've never met writing to me and telling me she loved my book or the lead critic for the sunday times it makes no difference to me well i mean obviously it makes a difference to book sales so Mm. that's 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 sort of irrelevant what i'm talking about is internally the fact that joe from berkhamstead got pleasure from my book is as important to me as anything else and um and that's been really wonderful having the passion um and support of readers um that's been truly surprising and very moving and and that's Mm. been my highlight in a way that's what you do it for It, it doesn't matter about anything else that is the nicest part of it Exactly. That is exactly it. And and I do think the world of writing and writers, authors, authors, is is actually in the main pretty supportive. Um it's such a long, slow, laborious process and such a you know, a triumph of will over adversity mm-hmm. that um that I think it's a very there's a sort of mutual respect that, that is exists between authors and and uh, and a kind of language and understanding that exists, um, which is really special. So your new novel's out in July. It's called Okay Then That's Great. Can you, it's very different from This Fragile Earth. So can you please kind of summarize it for us? Oh my God. If you can. can. It? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a, well, I'll start by saying it's a contemporary literary fiction with women's and comic elements. And it's got a, a very fresh, strong narrative voice. Um, it's about a woman in her very late forties, whose identical twin sister died just before they turned 18, just before they turned 18 in a hit and run. And she hasn't quite dealt with it. She starts seeing her dead sister, um, again, appearing in completely random, very places full of bathos, like pure gym on Essex road or whatever. Um, and she doesn't know whether this is a ghost or whether she's come back from the dead or is she having a breakdown? Like what's happening? Um, Or is it on a quantum field? And and so she starts seeing an analyst um, to try and untangle this mess in her head. And the analyst is losing his memory. So she can't rely on him. And then her life just starts to unravel. Um, It doesn't sound funny, but I promise it is. I can can back you up there. I've read bits of it when you're working on it and um... It's, it's brilliant and, and very witty so yeah you definitely get the, the thumbs off on the funny side of it thank you very much thank you so I want to ask you now you've obviously had a year of being a debut started your book in 2015 you have a lot of knowledge to impart about writing so I was wondering if you could share your top three tips for writers be it science fiction or generally okay so my I think my tips would be very general and they are entirely subjective as we know i mean i've heard all your other guests on your podcast chloe which i i love listening to your podcast um and they've all imparted great wisdom so i don't think i'm probably going to add that much more um my my top tips are writing a novel is not about inspiration necessarily it's about it's about it's a practice it's like a discipline so it's 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 dogged and and it's about sitting down even when you don't want to even if you're only going to do 40 words just do those 40 words and do them you know however many times you set four days a week five days a week seven days a week whatever suits you 
um or if it's four thousand, fine do that but like you know don't set yourself unrealistic goals just sit down every day and treat it like you know i don't know anyone who's learned an instrument as a child will know you have to do your practice day you know and your mum and dad mm. will make you go and do it and oh it was such a drag that's a bit like <laughs> that's a bit like to me what writing book is like you just got to sit down and do it so that's tip number one be dogged don't don't give up just keep going the second one and it's interesting because i was listening to kieran goddard on your podcast mm. the other day talking about and I do agree with him about be careful how many other opinions you get like writers groups or writing courses and I thought that was very interesting um I love the sound of his book by the way um I I I do agree with him on one level but I also think that joining a writing group full of good writers I I don't know how one discovers if they're good or not beforehand (laughs) um (laughs) You leave halfway through the first yeah. uh, session. Exactly. Well, people do, people do. But um, but full of good writers is quite valuable in that it's a shortcut to the editing process because we're so isolated. And sometimes, of course, yes, having seven voices all saying different things is going to be very confusing. But if you get seven voices saying exactly the same mm. thing, like, I don't get this bit, all of them, then you know whether you like it or not and it is really uncomfortable sometimes and sometimes I really don't want to go but it you go and you get you sort of grit your teeth and get your crit and go home and work on it and actually it's incredibly helpful incredibly helpful as well as they're very supportive um my third tip yes is more just what I said before I suppose it's a marathon not a sprint it doesn't you know you don't have to get it all done in the first book slash mm. whatever like just get your head down and see it as a long road and keep going I, I mean that sounds a bit like tip number one doesn't it but I suppose those <laughs> are my really yeah that, that is that is that's all the wisdom I have to offer because I don't think there's any magical you if, if if any of your listeners have listened to all of your other podcasts they'll hear there's so many varied mm. routes through to you know, writing, agenting, publication, blah, blah. Mm. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And everyone does it differently as well. Yeah. So we've already talked about a couple of novels that are kind of similar to This Fragile Earth or things that you read or were inspired by. Can you maybe give us two more that you feel like are good comparison titles? Okay. So, so one would probably be The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Um, yeah, that's a good. Chance. Just probably weirdly, I'd say your book is not as bleak as the road. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. It's not as bleak as the road. Yeah, um, it has more elements that aren't just the road, but it also mm. has a large portion of it. So you know, that's a father son. They're on a road trip. Um, it's it has it carries a lot of similarities. I know that my editor like and, and quite a few people have compared my writing style to John Wyndham in you know it's very it's got a very it's interesting because I'm actually not really English I'm I mean I grew up here but I'm, my parents you know Eastern European or German whatever all sorts of things but it has quite a British and perhaps even more specifically English feel to it in, in its setting and in its kind of quite 70s I think you can really see the influence of 
of those novels from when I was younger, like John Wyndham. So that's, I'm sorry not to be more specific in terms of an actual book, but that's the kind of author. Yeah, your your second book's about to be published, but I know you've already, you've already written your third novel or your your you're reading through all the bits of paper at the moment. So can you give us a little tease about what that's about? The third book, yes, I am in the sort of last stages of editing before it gets sent off to my agent, who hopefully won't go, this is awful. Um, <laughs> it's set in a tiny village, sort of hamlet in Cumbria, tiny, tiny village up north. An outsider comes in, a woman in her early mid fifties. She's a widow, um, her wife, died a year before and her wife came from this village and she this protagonist Annie brings her stepchildren up to live there which was one of the last wishes in the will of her ex-wife uh, well dead wife and so she goes to live like opposite her in-laws who are the village is full of old posh white people who are farmers and various other things and they are doing some strange things with pigs <laughs> and um it deals with aspects of um yeah sort of genetics I suppose um it's not deeply science fiction it's it's very loose it's a speculative I suppose or it has a like Hammer Studios type feel to mm. it so maybe like Kazuo Irishiguro never let me go or you know mm. um it's not um hard science fiction in any way but it is dark Ooh. it's on the darker side it's not as dark as this fragile earth though in mm. its tone I wouldn't say well I can't wait to read it and I've got your second novel sitting on my shelf ready to be read before it comes out so very excited very much looking forward to reading it thank you for joining me on the podcast today Susanna thank you so much for having me on Chloe it's been lovely that was Susanna Wise talking about her post-apocalyptic novel This Fragile Earth which is now out in paperback her second novel Okay Then That's Great is out in July Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival, hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. And if you're interested in hearing me talk in person about my novel, The Sea Women, I'll be at the Margate Bookie on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets for all these events are available to buy and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.